Johnson back to Fortino. Fortino rolling puck down low. Shot scores. It's Pula again. Canada wins gold in overtime. Welcome to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey, politics, and social change. I'm your host, Aaron Lakoff. Like blades on the ice, Changing on the Fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey. We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to the Changing on the Fly podcast. Aaron here. It's been a minute. We've been gone for a while. This is episode six of our second season. I haven't done an episode since January. So apologies to all of you out there scratching your heads thinking, where the hell did that guy go? We were enjoying that Changing on the Fly podcast. Well, okay, a couple things. One is, I've said this before, but it is really, really hard to produce a podcast on a regular basis while you're working a nine to five job. These things take a lot of time, a lot of research, a lot of editing, a lot of energy. And while this has always been a labor of love, unfortunately, I found myself in a really, really busy situation this past winter and just was not able to keep up with producing. So apologies on that. Second thing was... I don't know, there's kind of this little thing called COVID-19 that happened. I don't know if y'all heard about it, but um, it was crazy. And when that hit, of course, all of professional sports in North America and really throughout the world for that matter, shut down. And I was left thinking that I just wasn't sure if it felt like the right time to be producing a podcast about sports. Even, of course, if it's a podcast looking at sports and social justice, I just didn't know if it was the right time to be doing that kind of a focused podcast during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I pressed pause and I didn't do it for a while. And then I really felt motivated the other week to pick it back up for one huge reason. And that was, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement this hugely inspiring uprising that happened. Well, it's been going on for years now, but there was a big spike in it again following the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the end of May. And now what made this moment so uniquely different from previous police killings that we've seen, even in recent history, is that we've seen this massive, massive social outpouring. Now, I don't mean it's just, it's, it's not just coming from your usual suspects, right? Like your Colin Kaepernick types. I mean, Colin Kaepernick is still amazing. And unfortunately, he's, you know, one of the only outspoken figures in the football world. But now all of a sudden there's been this this avalanche, this this huge wave of statements being made in the professional sports world including in the hockey world, which, you know, hockey, as we know, as one of the reasons why I started doing this podcast, it's just been very, very silent on social justice issues for a long time. So to start to see not only the NHL, but a lot of NHL players come out with statements in support of the Black Lives Matter movement in recent weeks was really something unprecedented that I felt like we needed to weigh in on. 
on this program. Now, I'm not gonna be the type to weigh in on it myself. I wanted to go to some of the brightest and most brilliant voices speaking out for racial justice within the sports world. So today on this episode, you're gonna hear from two amazing people to break down this unique moment for us. First, we're gonna hear from Hemel Javeri, who is a sports columnist, a writer for USA Today's For The Win, and she frequently writes on race issues and hockey, again, doing that work that so few people are doing. And uh, so we spoke with her to kind of get her sense of why now in the hockey world? Like, what is this particularity? And and what are these shifts that we're seeing that, that, that make this moment possible? Then after Hemel, we're going to hear from Dave Zirin. Dave Zirin, I'm sure many of you out there know him. He is the sports editor for The Nation magazine. He is a writer. And I would argue one of the preeminent voices for social justice politics in sports these days. And with Dave, we kind of zoomed out a little bit to, again, ask that question of why now, what makes this moment different, and where might professional sports go from here? Both of our guests join us today from the D.C. area. That's just a bit of a coincidence, but, you know, lots of exciting Black Lives Matter things happening in D.C. that we got Dave to reflect on. So without further ado, we're just going to hear first from Hemel Javeri and then after from Dave Zirin. We're going to put links where you can find both of their work in the show notes. So please do check them out. So without further ado, let's get into this. Joining me on the program today is Hemel Javeri, who is a sports columnist for USA Today's For the Win. She's been doing a ton of writing and reporting over the last little while about race and racism issues in hockey. So I'm really pumped to have her joining us today from the D.C. area. Welcome to the program, Hemel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, First, just to get your reaction to what we've been seeing in the world of hockey and most particularly in the NHL over the last few weeks since the horrible police killing of George Floyd and since this new wave and this new eruption of Black Lives Matter protests have started. Uh, of course, we've seen you know unprecedented statements being made uh, by the NHL and by many hockey players. Now, whether or not there's a lot of substance to those statements is kind of another thing we can talk about maybe <laughs> later in this interview. Uh, but first to start, I'm just, yeah, I'm curious to get your initial reaction to see are you encouraged by what you're seeing and and what are some of your your feelings around what's unfolding right now? Yeah, I will say that I am encouraged by what I'm seeing. So before George Floyd, before the George Floyd killing, I was actually on furlough for about a week. And when you're on furlough, that means you're actually not allowed to like check email and you're basically supposed to just pretend like you don't work as a reporter. Um, but the week before I went on furlough, I had, you know, Akeem Alou published his column in the Players' Tribune about racism in hockey. And I had written something like about two days before, you know, I was about to be checked out for a couple for about an entire week. And I'd written something that was just like, this is a really serious indictment of hockey culture. And it's ridiculous that white players have not stepped up to say, we hear you and we support you. So this was a week before George Floyd happened. So when I came back a week later, we had already started to see statements from, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of um, not as well-known players within the NHL, like Connor Carrick was one of the first ones. Uh, um, 
Blake Wheeler was one. And uh, they were, were among the first to come out and say, wow, you know, what happened to George Floyd is really something we need to take a closer look at. So for, for just in, in a span of a week, right, for players to start to say race is an issue and we have got to start taking this seriously it is huge because it had not been happening before. So, yeah, it, I'm actually encouraged. Like, like you said, we can debate the substance of these statements and what will happen later. But the fact is, is that as it, in about 10 days, the narrative shifted from we don't think this is a problem. We don't think this is something that we need to comment on to we've been burying our heads in the sands and we need to take this seriously. Mm-hmm. Well, so you wrote a really interesting column recently about uh, the NHL's perhaps failed attempt to do some PR around this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's fascinating because, yeah, like you said, I mean, there's just been, I would say, uh, I would say that's a fair assessment to say a lot of hockey players and a lot of executives in the NHL have had their heads buried in the sand. Um, and now they're kind of emerging, trying to do something but not quite getting it right. And so, yeah. so you wrote this column about um, a video that the NHL posted uh, looking at uh, Tyler Seguin from the uh, Dallas Stars and the fact that he attended a Black Lives Matter demo in Dallas. Uh, the video was quickly taken down by the NHL. And so I imagine many of our listeners didn't see it, but can you just walk us through what that video was and maybe why they probably got some blowback around it. Yeah, absolutely. So the video that the NHL posted was, uh, in in my opinion, it kind of looked like a hastily cut together like PowerPoint presentation, but it was, uh, the, the text of the tweet was uh, listen, learn, and then some vague language about racial justice. And the video was Tyler Sagan. He had gone to a protest, a Black Lives Matter protest in Dallas, and he had been accompanied by the star's social media person. And they'd taken some photos and put them on social media. So it was well known that he had gone. And the NHL video comes out about three or four days after Sagan was at this protest and interspersed with some, you know, inspirational music or tweets uh, flashing up on screen that talk about what a great guy Tyler Sagan is, is because he's, you know, protesting and wants to learn more about issues of race. And the tweets were really just, I mean, insane. They were just stuff like, you're the greatest man I've ever known as a black person. I'm so excited, you know, to see you out there marching for us. Um, The entire thing was was really excessive. Like, I think in my column, I said that it was some kind of ability to like canonize him, like, like try to make Tyler Sagan out as, as a saint. But the truth is, is that black players have been fighting for racial justice for a really long time in the league. And at every turn, the NHL has pretended that their voices don't exist. Right. So the one time Tyler Sagan, you know, gets out of his house and decides to sit on a curb and watch protesters go by and uses the hashtag BLM, he gets this insane video made about him and the league throwing their support behind a white player who finally wants to talk about race. And they also ignored JT Brown, who was also protesting, right? Like JT Brown did not get an auditory video like this. So the amount of structural support that white players get versus the lack of structural support that black players got when they wanted to talk about this issue really shows where the NHL thinks uh, you know, where the NHL, like who the people the NHL thinks need to be paid attention to. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, of course, I mean, it's, it's really important to to point that out, of course, like which voices are being centered. Now, what's interesting is, uh, I suppose, in, in the days and weeks following that video is released and then it's hasty cover up is um, you're seeing now, uh, especially if you go through the the recent tweets that the NHL is putting up, it seems like that there's a little bit more of an effort there for the league to center uh, black voices. So especially black players within the NHL. Do you think that that move that they're making is is perhaps a result of the criticism generated uh, by that first video they put out? Um, I'll be honest, I haven't actually looked at the NHL Twitter feed in the last couple of days, but what I think is happening is, well, after the Tyler Sagan video, I reached out to the NHL to see if that they would be making a comment on it or if they had anything else to say about it. And I did not get a response back from them. So there, and I reached out multiple times for multiple issues in terms of, Hey, can, can we talk about this? Can you bring somebody on the record for us? So the NHL has clearly not wanted to comment on the record about this. Um, the NHL's uh, EVP of you know, diversity and inclusion, Kim Davis, wrote an op-ed for NHL.com that was, you know, gr- sounded great. It was all about how the league is committed to diversity, but it's all very vague. So the NHL, like, yes, maybe they're centering in the sense that players are, you know, if they're speaking up, they're getting a little bit more visibility on social media, but they're not being... Uh, uh, patted on the back for the work that they're doing, kind of like Tyler Sagan was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to jump back real quickly because you brought up JT Brown. And mm-hmm. I mean, his example is is really inspiring in all this because, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, he, he raised his fist during the, the national anthem in a game, I believe is at the beginning of the, the 2017 season. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was definitely the first player in the NHL to engage in, in that wave of protests you know, following the inspiration of of Colin Kaepernick, uh, and really significant that that he was a a, a black player and an African American who was doing it, um, and maybe just to contrast that a little bit. I mean, to me, it's it's a little bit shocking that there was, you know, not only no response from the league, but none of his other white teammates really stepping up at the time. I wonder if you can kind of take us back to that and maybe look at that, like. Do you see that moment as a bit of um, a precursor to what we're seeing today? Yeah, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, you know, he is the Kaepernick of the league or anything like that. But uh, he had stated that he was inspired by Kaepernick, that he did want to show solidarity. And so he decided to raise his fist. There were after the incident, there were kind of lukewarm statements from his teammate and his coach uh, and uh, they were all like, we support, you know, players' rights to protest. Uh, but it was all very much coded in language of, but we don't think it needs to happen within a game. And, of course, he never did it again, right? He, it was brought, it was, it was squashed very quickly. Um, I think JT Brown really has been incredibly vocal, and he's been vocal for a long time, like you said, since 2017, especially with everything that happened with Akeem Loom when we were talking about Bill Peters and conversations about racism within the locker room, his voice was always there. And the problem is, is that he's just not a well-known player. 
Now, if you had somebody who was well-known like P.K. Subban, who was uh, taking on these important topical issues, you could bet that the conversations would be much louder. Um, I think J.T. Brown in all of this is really is kind of an unsung hero. He's the one that's been doing the work along with guys like Joel Ward, who's no longer playing in the re league, but Devontae Smith-Pelly, who used to play for the Capitals as well. Like all these players have been talking about it. Nobody has just wanted to listen. Mm-hmm. And what about the league's commissioner, Gary Batman? Where where's he been in all of this? Yeah, right. I wrote about that too. And I said that, you know, they've had Kim Davis out like a shield, like trying to pretend that she's the one who has to answer for the NHL's diversity problems when that's not the case. It's really the commissioner that needs to be out there and needs to say, we messed up with how we handled JT Brown. We have not been doing a great job talking about this and Batman is nowhere to be found. Um, I think it was, it was Rick Westhead at TSN who said that they'd reached out to him multiple times to say, hey, are you guys going to change your language around protesting at games? And he's received no comment. Um, as you will recall, a couple of years ago, around the JT Brown incident, around 2017, Gary Bettman said that they respected players who wanted to protest, but that it needed to happen on their own time, right? Like there was all this conversation about how protesting didn't need to happen at games, fans don't come to the games for politics, stuff like that. So Bettman specifically needs to address his stance on player protest during the game, because again, once white players want to do it, that is when the league will listen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so, so of course, you know, over the last few days and the story is, it's, it's unfolding so rapidly, but we've seen, um, you know, PR moves, PR strategies that at times have been vapid being put out. We've seen players that are perhaps having a profound learning moment, but mm-hmm. the, the real question remains is, what will happen going forward? I mean, will mm-hmm. they, you know, take mm-hmm. these words and put them into action? I'm wondering, um, maybe to kind of wrap up, are you seeing anything either within the NHL or in the wider world of hockey these days that you find encouraging in terms of actual concrete steps moving forward to eradicate racism within the league and within the game? Yeah, and of course, this is not a thing that's going to happen quickly. This is not a thing that is... Uh, even going to happen within the next couple of years, in my opinion, because the problems are structural and they go all the way down to hockey as it's being played on the youth level. You know, it's it has to do just not with culture within locker rooms, but like accessibility and the financial burden of playing hockey. So I don't think any of this gets resolved overnight, but I am encouraged by the fact that there is open dialogue at this moment and public pressure is so heavy on leagues to make changes that they're going to make changes that they otherwise wouldn't even have considered. So if there was a time for Gary Bettman to say players can protest, it would be now and it would be because people have been hitting at the NFL really hard for for their lack of support for Colin Kaepernick, right? Um, So yeah, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by the Hockey Diversity Alliance. Like that really sounds great. It's made up of Akeem Alou. It is um, Evander Kane. I don't know if JT Brown has decided to be on there or not, but Matt Dumba is on there. Um, And they have really organized. And I'm not sure what's going to happen with that, but they're not affiliated with the NHL. They're going to be working independently and it's a huge step in the right direction. Um, I'm encouraged by players like Blake Wheeler and Braden Holtby and Jonathan Taves, 
all three white allies who seem to be on the right track of realizing that like, okay, our voices are really important here and how are we going to be able to help push this conversation in the right direction. Uh, Braden Holpe has consistently kind of been comfortable voicing his political opinion. He was the one capital who decided that he did not want to go to the White House to celebrate the Stanley Cup victory. Um, so he's been consistent. The guys like Jonathan Taves, right, like hugely popular, influential NFL, NHL player. So if he decides to come out and say, okay, I am going to support my teammates if they protest, or I'm going to support my, my teammates, or I will do it myself, that's going to be a sea change. So yeah, I, I am really encouraged, but I think what needs to happen now is that fans and the media in general, right? Like we need to take a good look at ourselves and say, where's the accountability for this? Like, are we willing to put on the pressure so that the people who have made these commitments and these statements know that they have to live up to them? Indeed. Once again, we've been speaking with Hamel Javeri, who is a sports columnist for USA Today's For the Win. Uh, she's been doing some amazing writing and reporting on this crucial moment that, that we're seeing right now in sports and in society at large. So we'll post uh, a link where people can find uh, your work. And, uh, and and I wanted to ask, I'm kind of curious, I'm yeah. not sure if you're allowed to disclose this, but you're you're joining us from the DC area. Are you a Washington Capitals fan? Oh, yeah, that's how I got into hockey. That oh, is, no way. Yeah, I was actually, I used to work for a fashion magazine, and one of my beats was writing these, like, monthly, like, kind of fluffy player profiles about, like, where the, <laughs> the player likes to eat and where they, what was their favorite movie, and that's kind of how I got attached to the team, so. <laughs> right on. Well, I mean, it. I, I would say, like, I, I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan through and through, but I have grown uh, a certain affinity in my heart for the Capitals yeah. over the years. Uh, you guys got Devontae Smith-Pelly after he played in Montreal, and I've always loved him. Um, have a bit of a soft spot for Ovi as well, too. Yeah. So um, How can you not? How can you not? <laughs> exactly. Well, once again, Hamel, thank you so much for joining us on Changing on the Fly. Thank you so much for having me. Joining me right now is sports editor of The Nation, writer and activist, Dave Zirin. Such a pleasure to have you here on Changing on the Fly. Oh, it's great to be here, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Definitely. Okay, so you're joining us today from D.C. I know D.C., uh, you know, I don't want to say that you guys have been at the center, but there's been massive, amazing things happening uh, in D.C. with the Black Lives Matter movement. And this is just such an incredible moment that we're seeing not only for social movements, but also, of course, reflected in the sports world. And that's something that you've been writing and reflecting on for a long time. So I'm really happy to have you with us to kind of try to help unpack and understand where we are right now. So to dive into it, I mean, you've written a lot about the history of sports and social movements. And I wanted to ask you, like, has there, in your opinion, ever been a moment quite like this in sports history from what you've looked at? Like, do you see other analogies coming to mind when you think about sports history and social movements in terms of what we're seeing right now? No, nothing comes close. I mean, the only thing I can think about is that what we're witnessing is the, the collectivization of Muhammad Ali. Because <laughs> I think about what Muhammad Ali did and he was an unbelievable individual, but 
as John Carlos from the 68 Olympics who raised his fist, he once said to me, he said, we were really, really deep in the late sixties, but we weren't necessarily that wide. Mm -hmm. Uh, in other words, their politics were really deep. They were revolutionary. They were black nationalists, left black nationalists, but they weren't particularly wide. In other words, they're not as widespread as we might think when we think about the late sixties and the revolt of the black athlete, the rise of feminism and women's sports and resistance on that front. I mean, but what you're seeing right now is like nothing else. I mean, one of the great differences between now and then to me is that you're seeing numerous athletes from Brianna Stewart to Carl Anthony Towns uh, to, of course, Stephen Jackson, who knew George Floyd. You're seeing these, these athletes in the streets mm -hmm. actually organizing and marching and speaking and uh, in the late 60s, when there were urban rebellions in cities around the country, it wasn't uncommon for the powers that be to send black athletes out to try to quell protests and calm them down. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you see a very different dynamic. Similarly, in the late 60s, on college campuses, it wasn't uncommon for, let's say, there was a building takeover against the war, against racism, or whatever issue was on that campus it wasn't uncommon that the athletes, specifically the football team, would be enlisted to surround the building and prevent food from getting in or communications from getting out. Obviously, this is a time before uh, cell phones and the like. So that was a, a critical counter to people doing building occupations, was creating an anti-occupation picket done by athletes. Uh, what you're seeing now is that, you know, first of all, the football team is out there and is doing the work, uh, the football, which so many of us, you know, have memories from high school as being kind of like the most politically reactionary part of one's given school. I mean, it's become a fulcrum of dissent at the professional and now at the college level as well. I mean, the demands that have been put forward by college athletes, it just, it just shows that, um, you know, Harry Edwards, the great sports sociologist, he's called black athletes, the canary in the coal mine, uh, when it comes to our society. And I think that there's an inverse of that taking place right now, where because black athletes are showing leadership and breaking through, it's inspiring confidence amongst wider and wider layers of people. Now, I mean, that, that's really interesting. You mentioned like how wide this moment is. And I want to shift the focus a little bit back to the world of hockey. I know it's not necessarily, you know, the, the focus of a lot of your coverage, but it is, of course, the focus of what we're doing here on this show, very much inspired by, you know, um, work that you've done and work that many other people have done in terms of looking at social justice issues in sports. And sadly, the hockey world has been oftentimes silent, uh, you know, very much like not even on the sidelines, but just completely out of the arena in terms of these important social debates. And so, What's been fascinating about this moment is the National Hockey League, the NHL, has actually come forward with statements and also amplifying or retweeting hockey players that are speaking out in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And now the cynical side, I have like a cynical side and an optimist side. And the cynical side of me says that the NHL, similar to maybe, you know, Roger Goodell and like, his admission that the NFL was wrong for um, their treatment of Colin Kaepernick, the NHL are trying to kind of 
save face because they know that they're becoming irrelevant for future generations of multiracial fans. So that's the cynical side of me that says this is just a business PR move. But the optimist side of me says that this is this could actually be like a genuine learning movement moment for white athletes. And so I'm wondering like what what would be your take on that looking between those two poles of you know the cynicist or the optimist? Oh Aaron, I think the right approach is to be optimistic that these franchises see which way the wind is blowing and feel the need to respond to that. But I also think it's important to have our feet on the ground and have a necessary cynicism that this is about trying to win that young generation of fans. And this is about not trying to look like you're politically backwards in any way. I mean, we're in a moment where uh, where you know it's like you can't be neutral on a moving train, to quote Howard Zinn, where your silence is going to be interpreted as actually taking a position. And everybody in corporate America realizes that. Everybody. And I think that extends, of course, to the world of sports. So, you know, Madison Avenue has a name for it. They call it woke marketing or woke branding. You know, we would probably call it woke capitalism. And it's, um, it's a way of making sure you don't lose out on market share. Mm. And that, that's what the NHL is doing. But I also think we can take great hope in the fact that because of the movements on the ground, which is where all of this starts, uh, the wind is blowing in a particular direction that's very beneficial for people who believe in racial justice and against uh, police brutality. Mm-hmm. And now, and again, maybe this is the cynical side of me talking when <laughs> the optimist side of me needs to step up a bit. But I think one thing that's really fascinating about this moment is that it's, of course, happening during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so professional sports, at least right now in North America and in many other parts of the world, are just at a complete standstill. There's talk of the NHL, like other leagues, restarting at some point this summer. Uh, but for now, things are, are pretty silent. And I'm wondering if, if that might actually play a part of the fact that, you know, leagues that have otherwise been silent are now speaking up. Like the NHL, there's really not that much going on in terms of like no Stanley Cup playoffs, you know. So so maybe like do you see it in a way as they're trying to fill a void or fill a space that's been left by the lack of actual playing? No, no, they don't want to be doing this. Uh, they're doing this because they have to be doing it. Um, yeah, the, the idea that they would want to fill it with this is is not what a typical risk averse executive wants to be doing right now. You know, again, this is about the movement in the streets and the need to respond to that. I think they would love to be a peddling out documentaries like, "Hey, let's do our version of the Last Dance with Wayne Gretzky, and let's have weeks of debate about Wayne Gretzky," as you know, instead of. Um, talking about Black Lives Matter um, and risking alienating a section of their fan base while at the same time trying to embrace this younger generation. No, I think they're, they, I don't think they're doing this to fill uh, commercial airtime. I think, you know, this is the sort of thing where uh, it's, it's just a necessity and they would be doing this even if the playoffs were going on. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I mean, that's good. I, that That's, kicking my uh, optimist side a little, little bit more into high gear. Um, I mean, th- there's been some pretty amazing reckoning moments in hockey over the last year in terms of hockey having to, to reckon with 
the deep racist culture that surrounds it and that's embedded in it. You actually wrote on one of those, those moments, which was, of course, Don Cherry being fired last November. Don Cherry, a very prominent uh, hockey commentator in Canada, uh, someone who'd been spewing racism uh, all over the CBC and all over Rogers for years. And, um, you know, to kind of maybe look at that moment, I'm wondering almost if it's a precursor to what we're seeing now. And and what I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, what's that impact when we when we remove racist voices like Don Cherry from the media landscape, what what might that open up in terms of the the debates that are possible? Well, it makes people feel like victory is possible, and that we don't have to put up with the same old crap year in year out, and that change is possible. Uh, and all these things are very important for building the confidence in social movements. And these cultural struggles, like getting a Don Cherry out of this perch of tremendous power and influence, I mean, they always have a ricochet uh, in terms of social movements. And when you can count up victories and count them up in the social and cultural arena, uh, you know, they tend to reinforce one another and ping back and forth in a very electric fashion. And so, you know, I thought it was very significant when Cherry lost his perch uh, because it was a statement to the world about where hockey was going to stand going forward. And yeah, it did lay the groundwork for this. And you know what? If it didn't, you know what would have happened is Don Cherry would have mouthed off something about Black Lives Matter and uh, and then he'd be gone now anyway. Uh, so, you know, in a lot of ways, they, they, they took out the trash at an opportune time. Yeah, and uh, thank God we didn't have to uh, suffer through that. Um, Last question I'll ask you, Dave, because I know you've been so generous with your time today. Um, you were up here in Montreal a few years ago. It was right after uh, Donald Trump was inaugurated. You were up here for a panel talking about that particular raw moment. And it was just a few months after Kaepernick started kneeling during the national anthem. And uh, and, and so you're part of a panel that, that kind of broke that all down. And I remember... One of the conversations we were having, you know, you were up in Canada, and so we were talking about hockey, of course, is um, we were talking about, you know, when might hockey start to see a Kaepernick moment? And I remember one thing that you said that really stuck with me is that all it takes is a spark, like something to happen and then, you know, can kind of unleash a series of discussions or protests. And what's fascinating is that even in those few years uh, since you were up in Montreal and since we were having those discussions, like I said, there's been a lot that's happened in hockey. There was the U.S. Uh, national women's hockey team that went on strike to demand better pay, Don Cherry getting fired, several prominent uh, hockey players of color coming forward with their experiences of racism. Mm -hmm. And so given all of that, you know, looking forward, um, and again, not not just on hockey, but professional sports more broadly, what would be some of your predictions for the next few years in terms of what this moment surrounding the aftermath of George Floyd's death and this resurgence of Black Lives Matter, what this moment might spell for professional sports going forward? Oh, gosh, I would be uh, nervous about doing predictions because I think the moment is so volatile. I think even if you ask me what things were going to look like in a week, <laughs> uh, I would be concerned about saying something too authoritative. Um, I think the streets are going to tell us. 
what's going what's gonna to happen in the next two or three years. And if the streets don't, then that vacuum will be filled by other forces, namely the forces of backlash. So this is a moment where I don't think we're going to see stasis. That's something I feel comfortable predicting, that we're either going to move forwards or we're going to move backwards. And that the actual athletes are going to play a really important role on whether that's the case, um, whether we go forward or whether we go backward. I mean, it mat- what matters is what's in the streets. What matters also is what uh, athletes do on the field of play and off the field of play. We're seeing that right now, and I think you know you can't. That's one bit of wine that you're not going to be able to put back in the bottle, and we're going to see that going forward. Mm, well, indeed, we'll keep listening to the streets, and uh, we'll keep following what you're doing as well, because it's it's very indicative in terms of uh, you know where the sports world needs to be at in this moment. And so, once again, we've been speaking with Dave Zion, who's the sports editor of The Nation magazine. Thank you so much for coming on the program today. No, no, no. Thank you, Aaron. All right. Welcome back here on Changing on the Fly. Hope you enjoyed those interviews again with Hemel Javeri and Dave Zirin, two amazing writers, commentators on sports and politics. You've got to check out their work. And again, Look for the links in the show notes. Now, as I'm recording this, it's the end of June. I'm in my apartment. You might be hearing some traffic sounds from out in the street, and it is sweltering hot in Montreal. Never really thought that I would be doing a podcast in late June, breaking down what's happening in hockey. But that's, of course, because the NHL season has been on pause since the COVID-19 pandemic hit. And it seems like it's going to be picking back up again soon. The league has come out with this kind of a, I got to say, it's a bit of a harebrained plan. It's its a little bit wild to restart the season, kind of fast forward the, the rest of the, the so-called regular season, and then do a collapsed uh, Stanley Cup playoffs. So it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. It's going to be especially interesting again in this time when there's this been this amazing black and brown led uprising in the states and here in Canada too and then we've been seeing hockey players speak out in support of it. I'm really fascinated to see where this is all going to go. So keep your eyes peeled, keep your feet on the ground, stay in the streets, do go support Black Lives Matter protests if there's one happening near you. I'm not exactly sure when we're going to be back with another episode of Changing on the Fly. I will say this though, do stay subscribed to the podcast feed. There is so much happening in the world of hockey and politics these days that I have a feeling that we are going to want to use this platform to come back and bring in voices that help us navigate these difficult yet inspiring and brilliant times that we're living in. So, you know, keep stay tuned to our social media, stay tuned to the podcast feed. As always, you can hit us up by email at changing on the five podcast at gmail.com. Before we go, I want to thank our Patreon supporters who helped bring this show to all of your ears this season. Aiden, Nick A, Jeff, Jeremy, Dan, Nick T, Shona, Andrew, Ted, Ellen, Amber, Bruce, Sam, and Grill. Again, thank you so, so much. We did take down our Patreon page recently just because, you know, we couldn't keep putting this show out on a monthly basis. But if you want to support this podcast, it's always going to be free to listen to. It's not free to produce. 
you can send us a PayPal donation of any amount. You can send that to changingonthefly.podcast at gmail.com. Once again, my name is Aaron Lakoff. Thank you so much for listening to Changing on the Fly. And we'll meet again at some point. Not sure when, but it'll happen.